Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Lee Soo Man, a popular South Korean folk singer from the 1970s, playing one of his hits, Happiness. Suman was successful in his home country, but foreign artists seemed to be more popular, and Suman was jealous. And it was after studying in the US that he decided it was time to do things differently. This was an era of economy first, culture following next, where economic powerhouses also led the world culturally. However, I decided to turn this on its head. Culture has the power to lead the world. In 1989, he packed in the performing and established his own company, which would become SM Entertainment. The goal was to turn Korean music, or K-pop, into a cultural and economic powerhouse by promoting South Korean songs and singers around the world. From the start, the goal of K-pop was globalization. If we create good cultural content and receive attention and love from across the world, the culture of that country will also receive attention and love, which will further lead to the national wealth of the country. And he hasn't done badly. The music video for this song, Psycho, by the girl group Red Velvet, has racked up more than 350 million views on SM Entertainment's official YouTube channel. The Korean creative content industry nets the country about $11 billion per year in overseas sales, with film, music, TV, video games and animation all finding popularity abroad. K-pop sales overseas are still growing in the double digits every year. But now Suman, the pioneer of K-pop, has sold his stake in the company he founded, SM Entertainment, to one of its biggest rivals, HYBE. That has sparked a takeover battle that could see two of the largest K-pop companies merge, raising some concerns about a potential K-pop monopoly. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In Lexington, Kentucky, I'm Alice Fullwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And in today's show, we're going to be diving into the business of K-pop. First, we'll remind ourselves of the song that put Korea on the musical map. Then we'll hear who's responsible for K-pop's massive international success and who's not. The Korean government has been great at trying to take credit for stuff they didn't do. They've done that from the beginning. And finally, we'll find out the secret to that success. Many Western big-name companies such as Universal or Sony, their nature of business are driving listeners' joy. But I would say K-pop is more about love, not only joy. 
Hi, Alice. Hi, Tom. Hello. Hi, Mike. Alice, your location this week, should we be expecting a briefing on the trials of America's most beloved fried chicken brand anytime soon? No, uh, I'm afraid not, although it sounds very interesting. The reason I'm taping from Lexington this week, which is the horse capital of the world, if you believe all the signs posted at its little puddle jumper airport, is not because I'm reporting any particularly exciting story on chicken or horses. I'm just staying with my in-laws. My husband and I came to visit them for the long weekend in America, and we've just stayed around for a couple of days. No such exciting adventures for me this week, sadly. But Mike, I believe you've been traipsing around Southeast Asia this week. Yes, I went to Saigon over the weekend, which is lovely and nice to go back for the first time since the pandemic. But I've mostly been very excited about this week's episode, which is all about K-pop. I never had you pegged as a fan, Mike. Purely from a professional standpoint, of course, but it's a fascinating industry. I've had Love Dive by Ive in the background all week, but all in the name of research. Yeah, if you say so, Mike. So how many K-pop fans do you guys reckon we actually have among our listeners? I mean, Money Talks is also a global sensation with a devastatingly handsome cast and high production values. So surely there's got to be loads of overlap. I can tell you actually that there is a nifty function on Spotify that tells us exactly what sort of music our Money Talks listeners like to stream when they're not listening to our previous podcast episodes back to back on repeat, as they often do. Surely our sort of refined and intellectual audience are popping on Mozart or maybe some Schubert? Mm, Maybe Bruce Springsteen? Nope, both wrong. It is a heady mix of Taylor Swift, Drake and Kanye. That mix does overlap somewhat suspiciously with my own music taste, so possibly I am our sole listener. But let's just assume I'm I'm very au fait with our listeners. Still, that does make it look like you've got a a bit of an uphill battle to persuade them that they should care about K-pop then, Mike. Well, Money Talks listeners might be a little light on K-pop knowledge, but when it comes to learning about booming export industries, I think we're on steadier ground. K-pop isn't just a huge and growing genre of music, but it's a fascinating industry as well. It's full of these vertically integrated companies that in some ways have as much in common with Korean electronics giants like Samsung as they do with Western entertainment firms like Warner or Universal. But even if you're not a K-pop fan, you are probably pretty familiar with Gangnam Style by the Korean rapper Psy, which was released in 2012. The music video became the first video on YouTube to be played a billion times. It's a sort of takedown of the glitzy lifestyle of Seoul's elite. And unless you've been living under a rock on the moon for the past few years, you will have certainly heard of the boy band BTS, K-pop's most successful group so far. Their song Dynamite set a new record with 101.1 million views on YouTube within 24 hours of being released. They've also been the biggest selling band in the world for two years running. And what proportion of those views is attributable to you, Mike? Other than the last couple of weeks, I can't take much credit. I'm not sure most people got into K-pop because of a corporate takeover, sadly. But I did. And and it's a really fascinating industry to look into. 
If you look around the world, one of our guests who we'll speak to a little bit later was suggesting that K-pop has about 300 million casual fans uh, outside of China, maybe another 200 million inside China. The industry as a whole is part of the Korean wave, South Korean cultural export spanning music, film, television. They've become hugely popular with a lot of mainly young people around the world. In money terms, the Korean creative content agency says 66.9 trillion won was spent on Korean creative industries in the second half of last year. So if you round that up to a year, you're talking about a $100 billion industry. That's global and domestic sales. That doesn't even include things like cosmetics and fashion that have become big export markets for Korea as well. A big part of the global K-pop movement is the idols, charismatic, highly talented artists who train for many years. But what you've also seen emerge are these really quite large businesses. Hybe has a nearly $6 billion market capitalization. That's the company that represents BTS. So it's among the top 50 largest stocks in Korea. And even people who know quite a bit about the music might not know quite as much about the companies. So we're getting the picture. K-pop is huge. Why did you want to talk about it now? So it all boils down to how the landscape of the business could be changing. The basic landscape for a very long time is that you had these three major market players. YG, which is known for the girl group Blackpink. JYP, known for the band Twice. And as we've heard about already, SM Entertainment, known for bands like Girls' Generation and Red Velvet. Those three companies were founded and operated by legendary producers who named the companies after themselves. And for a while, that was the market, basically. Additionally, there's one big newer entrant, part of a new wave of companies called Hybe, best known for BTS and obviously has captured a huge amount of value from that band. It's introduced a more sort of westernized model of running an entertainment business, which is multi-label. So there's a little bit of different producing companies under one holding company. You've also got other players in the market, tech companies that have entertainment companies within their portfolio. A key one of those is Kakao. There's all sorts of drama over these companies fighting over control for SM Entertainment right now. And as it's the sort of original K-pop agency, it's creating a lot of drama. To find out more about K-pop's biggest industry players and how the music got so big globally, I wanted to speak to Mark Russell. He lives in Seoul and he's the author of Pop Goes Korea, Behind the Revolution in Movies, Music and Internet Culture. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. To start with, could you tell me about the main players, the individuals that are really credited with K-pop's development? Who was around in those early stages? Yusuf Mon was a big one. He was actually a, a folk singer uh, of some note in the 70s and uh, just a celebrity in general. He hosted radio and TV programs before going to the U.S. to study engineering, of all things. You know, he came back in the late 80s and realized, I guess, he was maybe a bit old to be a pop star himself and started developing his own artists. He had a few artists on the go, but the ones that really took off uh, in, their, in the mid-90s was H.O.T. You would recognize that as K-pop now. You have uh, several members, Yona, in these sometimes cute, sometimes uh, striking outfits, uh, always a different visual concept, extremely catchy music. That group rose up, but eventually 
as you move into the 2000s, JYP Entertainment became a big deal. Isuman's SM Entertainment was a big deal. YG Entertainment was a big deal. Uh, they were generally called the big three, and they had the most weight. But there's always been a lot of people around. Uh, you have a manager from one label will go off and start his own label, sometimes tightly connected, sometimes uh, feuding with the old company. Sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. It's always been a very dynamic scene, and that's kind of what's made it so interesting and so lively. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing that caught my interest this time around, obviously, was the the sort of corporate takeover battle, and uh, it's it's been nothing if if not lively. Um, tell us a little bit about how K-pop went global, because I always I always think about this. You know, you had you had J-pop, you had Japanese pop music. I used to live in Hong Kong. You have Canto pop. But the pure, massive presence of K-pop globally is really like nothing else that's come out of sort of East Asia musically in the modern era. How did that happen? What Koreans perceive as a weakness, its small size is an often in many ways a strength because Koreans for a long time have been very aware that their market isn't big enough to be self-sustaining for a lot of products, not just entertainment. And so they often shape these things with an international mindset, the idea they need to sell abroad to do well, and they tend to be more open to outside influences. For a lot of these K-pop groups, there was always the idea that you have to get out. You have to be creating a product and marketing yourself in a way that, that does well abroad. Whereas Japan is just so freaking big. I mean, it's been the number two music market in the world for what, two generations, three generations. So for them doing well in America is kind of, it's, it's cool, it's gravy, but it's not the thing, right? The, the local market is what counts. Whereas for, for Korea, there's always been that international mindset. You see it in the movies, you, you know, to a large degree, even in TV, it's kind of there throughout the country and throughout the entertainment industry. I wanted to ask too about the South Korean government, which seems to have understood the importance of K-pop as a cultural and, and primarily, I suppose, an economic export as well. How has the government been involved with this process? Have they been sort of supportive, especially on the export side? How has it worked? Well, the Korean government has been great at trying to take credit for stuff they didn't do. <laughs> They've done that from the beginning. The truth of the matter is... For movies, they were more supportive because movies were able to be presented as more of a high-class, highbrow thing. Pop music was very much looked down on. They were not helpful for the most part for a long time. Once it was clear that this was a big deal, then they got a little more interested and a little more helpful. Now, the one way, though, to contradict myself, one thing that's helped a lot in Korea is with infrastructure. And now when I talk to international songwriters, you know, from Sweden or whatever, and they say, we love making songs, making music for the Korean pop music market, you know, because one, the stuff travels really well. Korean pop is very international, but two, we know exactly how much money we've made. We get these reports that are very clear, very quickly done. We get paid quickly and it's clear how it's been done. So I think that's one of the important things the Korean government and any government can do in the pop culture industry is to create that infrastructure to make the system transparent and functioning well. So when you look at K-pop as it stands now, how do you think about it in terms of the economics of the contribution of K-pop as an export asset to the country? How important is this industry? Well, I mean, it's pretty amazing that... Yeah 
biggest band in the world. BTS is, is Korean and all these other acts are doing so well, Blackpink and everyone. But the fact of the matter is when you add up all of the content industries together, they're a drop in the bucket compared to video games. Gaming is just so much bigger than all of them. And then when you add up all of the content, including gaming, it's still pretty tiny compared to physical industrial business compared to cars and nuclear reactors mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. But it is important. Soft power does matter in terms of raising awareness, opening markets, and of course, pop culture helps with that. So it, it's changing. It changes where you, you, you know, branding changes how people think about you and K-pop and movies and TV shows have been really important for making Korea in general more interesting to people all over the world. Entertainment is an important part of bringing along all the other parts of your economy. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. So we've heard there about how K-pop is seen as sort of helpful soft power to South Korea, specifically designed for export from the very outset. It's been successful through strategically designing the music and image to appeal to an international audience. But a lot of focus and criticism in recent years has been on the sort of factory system the agencies use to develop and churn out stars. But it's not a new thing. There was a Motown recording studio nicknamed Hitsville USA or the British production company Stock Aiken Waterman's Hit Factory. K-pop producers have in a way built on those models and the process of creating a star is now more visible through the internet and social media than it used to be. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear how appealing to big foreign markets has been such a deliberate strategy for these K-pop businesses. Of course, the Korean economic model has for decades placed exporting to foreign markets front and center, really. You see that in companies from Samsung to Hyundai to LG, but it's really fascinating to hear how this thinking has also permeated cultural industries like music. Yeah, I was amused by his rebuttal of the idea that the government has fostered this boom in K-pop. Still, the idea that it's taken an interest in this cultural export and invested in the infrastructure was interesting. You know, you see that sort of thing all the time with sports, like training athletes, building stadiums to host the Olympics, but less so with the arts. So it's sort of interesting that they've got involved in that way. On the topic of the arts, there is a piece in the culture section of this week's paper that I'm excited to read that explores how a trial in Atlanta may use lyrics from a rapper's songs as a kind of admission of criminal wrongdoing, which would be incredible when you think about the kinds of lyrics that appear in, in so many rap songs. What about you, Mike? What are you looking forward to reading this week? I am looking forward to reading as much as anything else, a lot of our Ukraine coverage. So obviously we've been covering Ukraine a great deal for the last year, but it's now looming round to the one year anniversary of the beginning of the war. President Biden's been in Kiev. So yeah, I'm really interested to read what we've got to say, uh, given that it's sort of momentous anniversary. To read those pieces and more, you will need to be a subscriber to The Economist. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes of this episode. After the break, we'll hear a bit about what makes the K-pop industry different to the music industry elsewhere in the world. And should K-pop fans be afraid of a K-pop monopoly? Hold up. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So we heard before the break how K-pop developed its global reach, but there are also changes happening at home in Korea that I wanted to talk about. Yes, we heard a bit about SM Entertainment, which was established by this man credited with being the sort of founding father of of K-pop. And now there's a takeover battle playing out over control of his company. What's going on there? So Lee Su-man left the company's board a little bit over a decade ago, but he remained involved as the chief producer. But he left that position at the end of 2022. And in early February, it was announced that he'd sold about 15% of the company's shares, uh, which is most of his position in it, to Hybe. Hybe has launched an offer to other SM Entertainment shareholders. It wants to buy more, which could take them up to about a 40% ownership stake. That would mean an effective tie-up of the number one and number two companies in K-pop. There is opposition among some shareholders. Activist fund Align Partners is fronting a media campaign against the plans on the grounds of monopoly and transparency. And at the same time, Kakao, which is a Korean tech company with a very popular messaging app, has been trying to make a global mark in culture and content. Kakao inked a deal with the SM management to buy some newly created shares, but Lee Su-man is taking legal action to try and block that from happening. It's fair to say there is not a lot of love lost between the SM management and Lee Su-man, which is made a little bit more dramatic by the fact that the company is now run by Lee Su-man's nephew, Lee Sung-soo. This is all subject to a review by the Korean competition authorities if it goes ahead, Hybe would control nearly two-thirds of the K-pop market if these plans go through. To get a better idea of how the sector works and what consolidation would mean for its future, I wanted to speak to Bok Young-soo. He's a senior research analyst at Samford C. Bernstein and the former head of market strategy at Netflix for North Asia. Bo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. What really differentiates Korean entertainment companies from the Western ones that some of our listeners might be more familiar with? First, let's say many Western big-name companies such as Universal or Sony, their nature of business are driving listeners' joy. But I would say K-pop is more about love, not only joy. Therefore, the Western companies are owning hundreds of artists making money from music, streaming, and existing IPs. So on the other hand, K-pop is more about love. The K-pop companies are making much stronger fan base and fan engagement with love. And secondly, in order to do the select and focus strategy, K-pop companies differently run their business model. For example, in Western music industry, All relevant functions are separately managed, like recruiting, 
training, marketing, concert, producing, production, and management. However, K-pop companies are conducting end-to-end operation as a one-stop shop, so it's vertically integrated. Thirdly, 50% up to sometimes 80% of K-pop companies, their revenue comes from one single topic idol group, including all different revenue sources like concert, TV, commercials, music, and merchandising goods. So very different revenue stream of Western companies having majority of revenue coming from mostly existing IP and the music rights. So uh, obviously this is a a massive industry already, and it's an extremely strong example of a sort of East Asian services export. How do you see it growing in the years ahead, given that it's already garnered this fairly large international audience? Well, I have a very strong and bullish view of this industry by supply and demand. Uh, One, there are not many countries in the world which can provide world-class pop titles. Korea is one of those countries which has developed its world-class producing capabilities so far. And also by having the streaming platforms such as Spotify or YouTube Music, this high-quality music will be also supported by the AI algorithm for recommendation again and again. Secondly, demand. So the global entertainment players such as Netflix, Disney, Paramount, which has billions of fans globally, they just figured out that this high-content ROI of their Korean drama with high-quality production, and they will keep investing heavily in K-content, and the side effects positively will affect this K-pop industry as well. We've seen a lot of buzz recently, and the reason we came to sort of do this episode when we're doing it about the possibility of mergers, corporate takeovers, corporate integration in this area. What do you make of that possibility, especially from a financial perspective? I like the consolidation and merger trend as a financial impact in the long-term view. To be honest, I still have some concerns about their recent hastened decision process without thorough pre-assessment processes. As I already mentioned before, K-pop industry has a unique value chain and a structure of having vertically integrated structure. Therefore, by consolidating and scaling up, the bigger and the better. First, globalization, for example, like SM Entertainment, which has experienced regional success in Asia region mostly, can get some benefit from Hive's global network and learnings for their global expansion. Secondly, bargaining power. Bigger companies will organically get the bigger bargaining power when they work with, for example, broadcasting companies, concert agencies, studios, merchandisers, and so on. Thirdly, producing power by sharing the producing capabilities and resources and learnings, the bigger company can benefit from each other, especially on pulling, collaborating the producers, artists, and studios, and trainees and engineers and production facilities. And lastly, cost optimization. They can manage the group shared functions for better margin structure going forward. 
Bo, you mentioned some concerns there about the specific consolidation, the specific merger that we're talking about. What would those concerns be? So near-term risks include some valuation of the deal structure, like pricing, and also some pre-merger integration processes like thorough due diligence with law firm, accounting firm. I could feel that there was no enough time to conduct those kind of thorough assessments ahead. The other one I have a deep concern about this company going forward is about the governance structure. Given that the presence of potentially their one activist shareholders of having roughly 1% of SM Entertainment, and also they have good alignment with uh, retail shareholders and Kakao Entertainment is soon to be the shareholder as well. And I think that um, those parties will not be highly pleased with the deal and announcements from the Hive's management of acquiring SM Entertainment business. So we have two parties not really happy with each other going forward. In South Korea, there's the risk that the competition authority will look into whether consolidation means that these large companies will own far too large a share of the market. So are there sort of potential negatives to this kind of merger? I don't really worry about that issue, especially the monopoly and the regulation issue. So one, regulated stance. This is like a pride industry for the Korean people, for their Korean pride. So there is no that much reasons to regulate it compared to some like consumer goods or other like factory businesses. Because this K-pop industry makes Korean people pride. So government will not be really unhappy with this consolidation going forward. Secondly, how can we size the market? Is this only about K-pop industry or competing against U.S. and Europe pop song industry as well, against Universal and Sony Music as well. It's more about like overall music industry. So I believe that the market sizing, there can be possible that somebody can claim that Hive is more than 50% of K-pop revenue, but that doesn't really make sense for regulators and also me because music industry cannot be defined by the K-pop only. Bo, absolutely brilliant to get your insights. Um, Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. So, Alice, Tom, are you K-pop fans now? And what did you think of what Bo had to say? In the process of preparing for this episode, I did listen to some K-pop and uh, it was very enjoyable. So I guess you could call me a fan. In terms of what Bo had to say, I thought the point that all of these K-pop businesses are already vertically integrated was interesting. Vertical integration is a big reason why companies will merge with one another. You know, it's supposed to generate all of these synergies. So the fact that you're seeing all of these mergers when everyone already has that integration in place suggests that it really is just about achieving sort of massive scale. And given that this one company might control two thirds of the market, I can completely understand why regulators might want to look at that. It actually reminds me of the really rich history of antitrust action in the arts. So in the 1940s, the studio system in Hollywood was broken up. This was a system under which these young and -and up-and-coming stars like Judy Garland would be signed uh, on by a single studio and would only do movies with them. And sometimes they would be forced to churn these things out, often for pay that would seem pretty measly by today's standards. This dominated Hollywood in the 1940s, but was eventually chucked out by the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, on the one hand, I think Bo is right that the music industry is a very global one. So you're probably not going to see much downside for customers in terms of, say, higher prices as a result of these K-pop companies consolidating. But the potential impact this could have on the Korean artists does complicate the matter somewhat. Another point that really struck me in the conversation is is the way in which we've also seen this surge of interest in recent years in Korean films and programs, uh, whether that's Parasite or Squid Games. And it'll be really interesting to watch whether that fuels appetite for for Korean cultural products more broadly, including K-pop in the years ahead. Yeah, I, as it may be apparent, I find this subject really fascinating. And I think putting it in the sort of broadest possible content, what I find really interesting is that if you look across East Asia, you look at Japan, China, Korea, Taiwan, these are countries with enormous manufacturing-based industries relative to most Western countries. And what they haven't done quite as well in most cases is develop exportable services. So if you look at the services export share of GDP, it's usually quite a bit lower. If you look at the UK share, I think it was something slightly over 20% in 2021. The world share uh, is about 12%. Japan and China are in the single digits, but Korea really outperforms on this front. It's got a a higher services export share of GDP. And I find that fascinating because obviously that includes lots of things and it's not just entertainment. But I think the way that the music and the films and the TV and the sort of idol figures wrapped together means that you get this snowball effect where the industries are all more competitive and more successful because they lean into each other. And yeah, it's a really interesting example of something Korea has sort of cracked. And the fact that it's done that with these business models that are actually quite a bit like the Korean export-focused manufacturing companies makes it all the more interesting to me. I think that's about all we've got time for before we turn to our statistics of the week. Tom, what have you got? My statistic of the week is 25%, which is the amount that the share price of China Renaissance, an investment bank, has plunged after the company reported its founder and boss, Bao Fan, missing last Friday. It's all very mysterious, but this disappearing boss thing seems to happen quite a lot in China. Jack Ma, the Alibaba founder, disappeared for a while back in 2020, after he got on the bad side of the Chinese Communist Party, as did the chairman of Fosun back in 2015, in in that case to help with a government investigation, it turned out. So it will be interesting to see what happens there. Yes, it's been a while since we had one of these executive disappearances, but it's just as interesting as all the previous ones. My stat of the week this week comes from the unbelievably depressing CDC survey of teenagers, and it is 57%, which is the share of teen girls that reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless, which is a significant increase from a decade ago, and attributed to both the rise of social media and uh, increased reporting of sexual assault among surveyed girls. I apologise to my co-host. There's probably no sort of jolly way to move on from this stat. Yes, another bleak stat from you this week, Alice. Yes, my apologies. I'll come up with something a, a bit more cheerful for next week. 
So on a very different subject, my statistic is $200 million. And I should say there's a range of estimates around this, but it is the figure for the reported assets under management of Galois Capital, or it was the figure for the assets under management. This is the crypto-focused hedge fund that has shuttered because a large proportion of its funds were stuck on FTX. When FTX collapsed, there's some slightly bleak irony in an industry that started off with a critique of mainstream financial institutions and banks and brokerages, seeing some funds get shuttered because their money was on the wrong exchange. Yes, it is deeply ironic that crypto was founded partly because people didn't want to trust big institutions with their cash. And a lot of the industry has developed to trust a certain institution with their cash. And now it's gone. That has got to suck. With that, I want to thank Mark Russell and Bok Young Soo. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Forward. And this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.